Dear Lord, thank you for another Sunday that we can gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ to open up the Word of God, to encourage one another and pray for one another and uh, explore the glories of our mutual salvation. Lord, we pray for the flock that's scattered around the world, that many of whom are just lonely and the remnant and don't know where to go to church, we pray that you would bless them and help them and help them find fellowship. Thank you that they can join us over the Internet. Lord, we commit this study of the Scripture into your hands, and we ask for wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 10. We were looking at that last week, and we are looking at a section of Scripture that's often misinterpreted. It's misinterpreted along the lines of spirits and demons and what have you, but in reality it's about ideas. Last week we were studying verse 5, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience, obedience of Christ. So we pointed out that the terminology here has to do with thinking and ideas, not demons and Satan. Speculations, thoughts, and so on. And it has to do with the false teachers in Corinth who were in opposition to Paul. And in this last section, chapters 10 through 13, Paul is taking them on head on. He is saying that he is not going to tolerate what's been going on. He's calling for repentance. He's calling for obedience to the gospel and so on. So that's what's going on here. Now we are in verse 6 where it says, And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And this seems a little hard to understand, but I think we can make sense of it. The disobedience is the disobedience of the Corinthians who are listening to the false teachers. They're listening to the people who are are claiming to be super apostles. As I said last week, there are two issues going on in Corinth, and we glean this from both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, putting together all of the things that are said and re, you know, kind of constructing a context for this. The two issues were those who claimed the liberty to participate in the pagan feasts that involved immorality. And the other issue was super apostles who claimed to have a higher order spirituality and they were more spiritual than Paul and they questioned his spirituality. Those are the two issues that Paul is addressing, and that's what the disobedience is all about. So he has boldness in verse 2, and he's willing to take this on, and he uses the terminology here of a siege of a city. Ramparts pulled down, captives taken, punishment wrought on the prisoners. That's, That's the... Very strong terminology that Paul uses here. Now, when it says, whenever your obedience is complete, 
um, probably means when they are motivated to reject the false apostles and to repent of immorality. Reject the false apostles and repent of immorality. That's what Paul is looking for from the Corinthians. Let's see. Sam, could you look up 2 Corinthians 13.2? And Brian, 2 Corinthians 13.10. Okay, 2 Corinthians 13.2. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Okay. <laughs> so, Paul, that's his boldness. Okay, if I come again, I'm not sparing anybody. If you sin, you better get ready to repent. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13.10. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Yes, the... Uh, one of the things Paul's concerned about, and what one of the accusations they're leveling against Paul, is that when he writes his letters, he's really strict and bold and strong, but then when he's present, he's not so impressive. Okay? And, and Paul, in, in defending himself, is saying that he would prefer not to be harsh and bold with them present. He would prefer to write the letter that they would repent and that he could come and meet them in person on more amicable terms and not have to be one who would deal with them so sharply or boldly. I'm quoting Garland here. Paul is primarily interested in correcting the disobedience of the Corinthians themselves. The disobedient include those who think that Paul walks according to the flesh, are guilty of sexual immorality, and continue in their associations with idolatry and promote false apostles. Paul promises in 10.5 that he will punish those who are disobedient when the obedience of the Corinthians is complete, that is, when they get in line with the gospel. This means that Paul does not wish to exercise his authority independently of the Corinthians, but intends to act in concert with them. So he's pleading with them to take action and to do what they ought to do and it's an interesting thing, the, Cor- the Corinthians. It's, it's a struggle, really, to interpret this. We've been working our way through, and we're going to get all the way through Second Corinthians. But the reason First and Second Corinthians are interesting and difficult to interpret is that there's so much that's not said. Okay, because we know there was a letter before First Corinthians that's not extant. And we know there was another severe letter between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And a lot of what's being discussed in the passages are things that they know and Paul knows, but we don't. So we're all the time trying, you know, having to try to catch up here and understand it. All right, let's go to verse. Yes. A question. Um, If this happened. Oh, there we are. Oh, yeah. Where are you? (laughs) I heard a voice coming out of the sky there. Do today's pastors or bishops or, you know, overseeing pastors have the same authority? Can, can one pastor go to a different church and try to work with them to correct their members or, or even exert a stronger authority over them? 
Well, uh, or perhaps in a denominational you, structure, or as I understand the authority in the church, the the authority is the authority of Scripture, and the church is to be led by elders who are qualified according to the terms of Acts 20, Titus 1, and 1 Thessalonians 3. No, they're local. But what happens if something goes astray? Is that Your question is, what about in some other church? Maybe they don't have good elders and things have gone astray. Well, the only recourse we have is really just teaching the truth and correcting error in whatever means we have, by whomever, because the authority is the authority of Scripture. Okay? So... My way of doing that is by writing critical issues, commentary articles, making DVDs, going on the radio, and just in general instructing the church about what's true and what's not true and what errors ought to be repented of. But I don't see bishops or cardinals or prelates or... I just don't see that as being a biblical understanding of church government. I think it's just local. Okay, so you'd say we can't attempt to do what Paul was doing here because we're not an apostle. There's no apostle today. Well, we have apostolic authority in the sense of the Scripture itself. I mean, the Scripture is authoritative over all Christians wherever they might be. And so if I have some reason to be in contact with a church somewhere that's in error... I or anybody else has the authority to lay out the Scripture and say, here's what it says. This is what God said. And that is still authoritative. Paul is authoritative today through his writings. That's how I understand it. Troy? Basically, you just said what I was going to say. There's really no um, hierarchical way to do this, but you can always present the Word of God to them. Several people from church here have went to their past churches, and they have tried to correct pastors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact... The a member of a congregation has the authority of Scripture. And a pastor doesn't have more authority because of having some office. And if the pastor is in error, then he has to be rebuked. And evidence of that would be found in the uh, epistles of First and Second Timothy. As I understand First and Second Timothy, remember when Paul in Paul in Acts twenty prophesied to the elders in Ephesus that from their own midst would come wolves. Paul's prophecy came true, as I read and understand from Second Timothy, and some of the false teachers in Ephesus were actually elders. They were elders who went astray in Ephesus and were the false teachers. And so Paul instructed Timothy to correct them. To, to uh, rebuke the elders and tell them to repent. Yes. I think that in certain denominational structures, they have church governments that they've set up that own assets, that own buildings, that take care of retirement funds and all kinds of things in a church government. In that church government that people sign up to, there is an authority structure that's there that tells people what they can and can't do. And in as much as that is there, though that authority structure maintains a doctrinal position or maintains an oversight over a church. It's not necessarily the biblical concept you're talking about there, but in a, just a human government. A civil setup, government. A set of civil government. They can eject churches or eject members uh, for straying from the truth, and they've used that to you know, you know, 
people have been kicked out of the Baptists, people being kicked out of Pentecost, uh, Assemblies of God, because they're embracing error, you know, and they've used that to a good way or in a good way. Okay, so they, they can have a civil government based on whatever sort of organizational structure they have, but the ultimate authority is the biblical authority of Scripture, yes. Wasn't it a while back where you went to California because a, a, a church out there, the, the, the purpose-driven, was seeping in, and then some congregants asked you to come out there? And, mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if elders were present at that particular meeting, but that's you were... Yeah, they asked me to come out to try to correct the, the, the entire movement that was going away from the gospel. And what we're seeing happening, frankly, is that, uh, and I've heard this for so many dozens and dozens of cases, it's just a, a becoming redundant, but the problem is the leaders are the problem. The pastors, the elders, the denominational leaders, the seminaries, the problem are the people who are in authority. The people that are wanting the truth and wanting the gospel are the members, or some of them. And they've, uh, I've talked to so many people who have gone, well, I've gone with some of you here to confront leaders in churches, congregations, and seminaries. And Eric, remember our meeting? Eric and I sat with a, the guy who's totally in charge of a seminary and pleaded with him to teach the doctrines that they have in their statement of faith in the seminary. And he didn't want to do it. Well, this is a Baptist seminary. Would you just teach what you say you believe? Hmm. <laughs> you guys are too strict. <laughs> they want to do that. So uh, sometimes they're just a reordering and restructuring, and, and I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to go. Sometimes you've got to start over. Just start new congregations with new elders and new leaders and start preaching the gospel. Let's go to verse 7. Okay, so Paul wants to correct the Corinthians, and there's some issues in the Greek, by the way, in this whole chapter. And for whatever reason, Paul's Greek isn't as clear as we would like here, so in some cases there's decisions to make about how to translate this. But it says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as... He is Christ, so are we. Now, I'll tell you why there's an issue in uh, interpreting this or translating it. There's an imperative here. Um, look, looking, or look is imperative. So you could say, uh, as one of my um, scholars that I read said, you could say this. Look at what's in front of your eyes. That's another way this could be translated. Just look at what's in front of your eyes. And in which case, Paul is telling them this. Rather than rebuking them for looking at what's outward, look at what's in front of your eyes, and what would they see if they looked? Well, they'd see that the reason they exist as a church was because Paul came there and preached the gospel. Okay, so Paul comes, Paul preaches the gospel, God converts them, and they become a church, and then they think Paul doesn't have it right. And so if that's how we should translate this or interpret this, then we would say Paul is telling them to look at what's in front of their eyes and wake up and notice the reality uh, that's right there in front of them. 
Now, that's how Dr. Barnett would interpret that. Let me, let me look up what he has to say here for, let's just say, 471. Here's what he says. Their conclusion has been arrived at, apparently on account of what they regarded as his ineffectual attempt at church discipline when present during the second visit, followed by his bold, severe letter when absent. If this one is confident that he is of Christ, that is a Christian, then Paul does not raise doubts about his spiritual standing. But let the same recognition be extended to Paul. There's kind of a barb there. Very interesting. Paul, as I read First and Second Corinthians, and I've spent a lot of time in this trying to understand it, he's amazingly patient with them, in my opinion. If you read about the problems they had... In 1 Corinthians, going to the pagan love feast, claiming the right to commit fornication, participating in idolatrous uh, meals with the pagans, listening to false teachers who claim to be more spiritual than Paul, following the super apostles, and yet Paul believes that they're Christian because he preached the gospel to them and they believed it, and so he keeps pleading with them, to follow, to repent, and to live up to the calling that's there. And so he's willing to extend to them the grace to believe that they're actually Christian in spite of themselves. And he's asking them to do the same to him. Okay. The whole concept is so weird because when you read Corinthians from our standpoint, maybe from the pietistic American background or whatever, you see fornication going on in the church and the kinds of moral we think moral outrage or moral lapses that are huge and Paul's extending them the the concept they are Christians and they're just erring. Uh-huh. And when you come to the Galatians though, they're the pious ones that are living these noble these pious lives but be, they're claiming their a superior status because of their piety that they've built on their own Works. Uh, works and Paul anathematizes them, but, but from the outside, from an American point of view, we take the Galatian church every single time. <laughs> I, you know, you're absolutely right, Keith, and I've wondered about that for for years, uh, really, for years, as I read the New Testament, how Paul is so uh, patient with the Corinthians and impatient with the Galatians. Why? Because Paul saw Judaizing as the biggest threat against the gospel in his lifetime. I really believe that he thought that was the one thing that would destroy the gospel, is Judaizing. Yeah, it's still a problem. Absolutely it's a problem. There are people today, there's a church in the Twin Cities that are telling people they have to follow the Jewish law and only study Torah, forget the rest of the Bible. Okay, it's, it's still a problem. So Paul saw that as a, a threat, and he treated it with ultimate seriousness, called the Galatians fools, called them bewitched, and anathematized them. <laughs> okay. The Corinthians, he believed that they would repent because they, they had the gospel. The, the Galatian problem was an attack against the gospel. So... They're looking, either, either he's rebuking them for looking at things as they are outwardly or tell them, telling them, look at what's in front of your eyes. 
I think I had another quote here. Garland says this. He therefore demands that the Corinthians reconsider the evidence that will require them to admit his status as a man in Christ. They're, they're looking at him, Paul, according to the flesh. He's walking according to the flesh. So they say, no, look at the, look at the evidence. I preach the gospel to you, and you're a church. So I'm a Christian. Then they need to see their very existence as a church as ample proof of the power of God working through Paul in spite of his weakness. It's difficult to decide between the two interpretations, but the preponderance of Paul's usage of the verb blepatel as an imperative, look, argues for the second alternative. Look at what's before your eyes. So, looking at the Greek and reading what the scholars have to say, I would agree with them, and I think that the New American Standard is not translating this correctly. That the imperative would say, look at what's in front of your eyes, not just making a remark, you're looking at things outwardly. Look at the evidence and change your thinking. That's what Paul's telling them to do. That's the imperative. That's our exclamation mark. Um, if anyone's confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider. Now, here's our word that consider there. This has been repeated a number of times, this word and other forms of it, logizomai, which means to reckon. And there's probably, uh, if you look back at verse 2, back in verse 2, the same word was used. It says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with confidence in which I propose to be courageous against some who regard logizomai, us, as if we walked according to the flesh. So they reckoned, legitimately, that Paul walked according to the flesh. And now he's telling them, no, why don't you reckon uh, this again? Just as he is Christ, if you believe you're in Christ, then so are we. Okay? Now, let's go to Romans 8. I, I, want, I want you to see something there to help understand this, okay? Let's go to Romans 8. Assuming Paul understands this the same way in Romans, you can see why this is so important. So if they think Paul's walking according to the flesh, they actually think Christ is not working in Paul. Here's what it says in Romans 8, starting with verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. All right? So if Paul's terminology is the same here as in Corinthians, that if they consider Paul walking according to the flesh, they consider Paul as being hostile toward God. Yikes. Can you imagine the apostle that came and preached the gospel to them and they're, they're accusing him of this? Okay. Uh, the mind set on the flesh hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Deutimus, power, the word power is there. Now, it doesn't, have, doesn't even have the power to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So, according to the flesh and according to the Spirit, in Paul's terminology, is not two different kinds of Christians. The higher level one and the lower level one is people who are either lost or saved. If you're walking according to the flesh, you don't even have Christ. You can't obey God. You can't submit to God. You're not even able to. Your, your mind is hostile to God. And that's what they're regarding Paul as. Try. Would you say the difference between the Corinthian church and the Galatian church is that the Corinthians had the true gospel? They were, yeah, they, they were converted according to the true gospel, and they weren't trying to corrupt it with works, with works righteousness. But they were more guilty of licentiousness. Did I say that right? What do you know? First time ever. I've always said that word wrong. We've got to learn, Dick, either learn how to pronounce a word or take it out of my vocabulary. <laughs> We're doing radio. <laughs> Just stick with words you can say. But they were guilty of claiming liberties that they did not have, whereas the Galatians were guilty of adding works to the gospel. And Paul taught, took the Galatians' problem more seriously and considered them... Anathema. The Corinthians, he's not agreeing with it, and he's warning them that if they don't repent, there's horrible, serious consequences. But they, had the gospel. But they weren't trying to add works to the gospel like Galatians were. Yeah. Well, I don't, you see in Corinthians, most of it's their actions. They're not understanding the message properly, so their actions don't reflect what the gospel is saying. Whereas in Galatia, you have the gospel itself being perverted and trying to drag them back into an apostasy that we see in Hebrews. Yeah. Hebrews is, by the way, Dick, can I address you here? <laughs> we were, we're doing radio on Hebrews. We just started. We're going we're gonna to teach through Hebrews on radio because we think that the book of Hebrews is the most important book for the church today. Most of the errors and problems that are going on in, in evangelicalism today are corrected in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to do radio, go right through the book of Hebrews. We did chapter 1. We were going to do 26 radio shows, two per chapter, but chapter 1 kind of was a setback. It took us three. <laughs> Anyhow, I was doing a little study, and the Alexandrian William Lane's commentary on Hebrews tells us, and this guy is just a brilliant Greek scholar, that it's almost certain that an Alexandrian Jew wrote Hebrews. Because only in Alexandria was Hellenistic Judaism sophisticated enough to have the level of Greek eloquence that's in Hebrews. Hebrews surpasses every other book of the New Testament in the level of rhetoric and sophisticated use of the Greek language. And that was the forte of Alexandria where the Septuagint was. And I was just reading in Acts yesterday, and I see that Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew. So maybe it was Apollos that wrote Hebrews. I thought this morning's group would probably appreciate this fact. We would have been on target to do two sessions per chapter. But you got stuck on the first verse, and it took us a half hour, one whole program. It took us 30 minutes. the first verse. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we got onto this thing where it says God spoke. That took a half hour <laughs> to talk about. 
But what more important issue is there that God spoke? God spoke. That's, uh, as I said on the radio, Hebrews, I feel like recently I'm wearing out Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. I, I cite it too, so often. But I think it is the uh, watershed issue. This is the issue right now in the church. Has God spoke? Secondly, has he spoke fully and finally? Thirdly, has he spoke in such a way that we are bound to what he said? And are we willing to listen to him and obey him? Those are the issues. What else is there? And if God spoke, are we going to listen or are we going to neglect so great a salvation? So we're going to do radio on Hebrews and this is, pray for us, it's, uh, frankly, adding this to my plate right now is, it's, a, it's, a, it's very burdensome. Just on the internet, oneplace.com or cacministry.org. By the way, I don't, the way things are going, some people think that they're going to resurrect the fairness doctrine or fairness thing and kick the conservatives off the radio. I'm of the opinion that we need to invest as much as possible in the internet. And so we're, we're putting everything on the Internet. Because that, I don't know. I think if the government tried to clamp down on the Internet and not allow people free speech there, there would be a revolt in this country. I don't know. I hope so. But that we're putting it all on the Internet because that can go all the way around the world. And the Hebrews that we... What's that? Yeah, radio costs a lot more than the Internet. The Hebrews we have now on the... On our website was done on my Sunday school class starting in 2003 in our old building. And the first six chapters or so, the recordings are very poor. Some of them are missing. And I think we could do a lot tighter job of just sticking with the text doing the radio. So we're going to do it even though it's very burdensome because I'm adding this, the study to get ready to do Hebrews on the radios on top of sermon, Sunday school, writing book, writing CAC article, and everything else that's going on. So pray that we could fulfill it. We, we think we need to do it. Yes. I really take advantage of the programs on the Internet by podcasting them. You can use an MP3 player. Yep. A lot of people here maybe don't know about that, but um, you can, it automatically downloads your computer. You can put it on your MP3 player, your iPod, and listen to it wherever you are, Yep. vehicle or anything. So. The, the, the iPod and MP3 player is the reason radio is having a tough time financially because that's, how, that's where it's all going. So... Back to verse 7, they're looking at things. Or I, the way we're interpreting this in the imperative, look at what's in front of your eyes. Christ is in me, Paul is saying. And it has to be so because you're a church because I came and preached you the gospel. So now or how in the world are you saying that Paul is of the flesh? Okay? What kind of a crazy uh, understanding is that? So... They're probably questioning either whether he's a Christian or whether he has any apostolic authority. Let's do some cross-references. And some of these cross-references are about looking at things outwardly in a negative sense, which is how it's interpreted in New American Standard, but we can still learn something from those. You got the mic? Okay, go ahead. Robert, could you look up 1 Samuel 16:7? Lawrence, Matthew 23, 5, Michelle... Luke 16:15, De, uh, Dale, John 7:24. First Samuel 16:7. 7. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, that's a famous verse. The Lord looks at the heart. And Matthew 23 and verse 5. Matthew 23, 5. But all their works they do to be seen by men, they make their, okay, here's a word that's really. Phylacteries. Thank you. Broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Okay. Um, that was the Pharisees. They wanted to be seen by men. That's, that's kind of the essence of false religion, isn't it? Putting out a show so everybody sees your piety. You know, when you really understand the truth and you really understand the gospel and it penetrates into your heart, Frankly, you don't want to be seen because you know you're such a sinner. Honestly, it's just absolutely that way. The more you know the truth of the gospel, the more you realize how sinful you really are. And uh, if you feel that way, you don't want to <laughs> you just assume people not see you. <laughs> God is just gracious to allow me into his kingdom at all. I, I don't deserve to be here. But when there's a parade or a show being put on, something seriously amiss. You know, like you turn on one of these Christian TV stations and these people are sitting on a gold throne. <laughs> Did you ever see that show? These people are sitting on gold thrones and just, hey, look at us. It's like, Don't you realize you're sinners? What's wrong with you? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Luke 16:15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Knowing that God knows the heart is not a comforting thing. It isn't. It's not a comforting thing to know God knows the heart. But what is comforting is that the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's in Hebrews. <laughs> and, uh, boy, we need to hear that every all the time. Why do we need that? Well, we need the comfort of the Scriptures and the encouragement that God is a forgiving, loving, merciful God. And that's why we need to preach the gospel even to Christians. John seven twenty four. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Okay, I got one more. Donna, could you look up 1 John 4, 6? 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Very interesting. We are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. You can tell a lot about a person by what they're willing to listen to. All right, just think about that. What are they willing to listen to? If you preach the gospel in all of its... There's a story about that, okay? And I'm going to try to do this from memory. I have a book about American revivalism uh, by a guy named Hardman. See, It's called Season Refreshings. I took a course on American revivalism from Dr. Travis. 
the guy who taught church history that we have on our website, the class on church history. And very interesting. But in the history of American revivalism, one of the great preachers was Whitfield. Okay? And according to the book, the, this uh, historian said that ben, Benjamin Franklin admired Whitfield, even though he didn't really believe the gospel. You know, I don't think Franklin was an uh, evangelical Christian. But he was really fascinated by Whitfield. And according to one quote in this book, Franklin said about Whitfield, the amazing thing is these people come in droves. They come to listen to him by the thousands. They, even, and they listen attentively, even though his preaching is such that he convinces them they're half devils. <laughs> and so these people all come to hear Whitfield tell them how wicked sinner, sinners they are. But they, but they still keep coming back, and, and Franklin wanted to know why they kept coming back when he treated them so badly. Well, because they, you can see something about those people. They love the gospel. I don't mind a preacher telling me I'm a sinner. I know he's right. <laughs> yeah. well, one, same thing when he went to see Whitfield. He was wondering how this whole thing worked. And uh, there was an offering taken, and he, I think maybe two offerings taken. He, first day he put in a, a coin by the end. Time the whole thing was done, he'd emptied his pockets and given them all his money. Yeah, yeah. Franklin so would go and give his money to Whitfield because he was convicted. <laughs> so anyhow, John was saying that they, the one who's from God listens to us. Who us? Well, John, the apostle and the true gospel that he was preaching. And it's not an overstatement to suggest that if the world in its sinfulness loves your message, you're not preaching the gospel. I don't think that's, I think that's a valid implication of, of 1 John 4. Yes. I assume that you chose the John 7.24 talking about the Paul situation. But when you use the term judge with righteous judgment, uh -huh. you're talking about I should, you should, we should judge. How do we do that? How do you judge with righteous judgment? Be by making our judgments based on the objective teachings of God's Word that He's given us and not using subjectivity. Subjectivity is how I feel about things. All right? You can't trust it. Absolutely. When it comes to spiritual things, your feelings are worthless. Now, why am I saying that? Because I see people deceived all the time. They, people go to yoga classes in a church, and when, and when they're interviewed on the way out and asked why they do it, they say, well, because it makes me feel closer to God. Okay? Feeling closer to God is worthless. That's not righteous judgment. The, as we said about Hebrews several times, Hebrews never talks about feeling close to God. It talks about drawing near to God. And the Bible tells us how we draw near to God, through the blood atonement. Now, you can draw near to God through the blood atonement and feel not so good. Or you could feel really close to God and be on your way to hell. <laughs> I saw a bumper sticker. <laughs> I shouldn't read bumper stickers, but I, was, I just came up behind one the other day. It says, it says where are we going and why am I in this handbasket? <laughs> Uh, that, was, that was a good one. 
<laughs> yes, Larry. So we, so we, in regards to what Dick was saying, we are supposed to judge because, you know, this touchy-feely, you know, uh, wind chime incense Crayola crowd, you know, it's, <laughs> You know, part of that. <laughs> hey, that was good. I mean, we're supposed to judge, though. We're called to because you hear folks saying, well, you're not supposed to judge me, but I think it's because of an inaccurate understanding of what scriptures really say. Yeah, I wrote an article about that. I can't remember what issue it was. But I went through the passages in the Bible about judging and about not judging. Did a whole study through the New Testament on the different words, credo and anacrino and diacrino various words about discerning, judging, not judging, and then took all of the material that I gathered from that word study and put it into categories. And then, okay, what does the Bible tell us not to judge, and what does the Bible tell us to judge? Now, the bottom line was this. We're supposed to judge what we can know, and we're not supposed to judge what we can't know. Okay, now what can we know? Well, you can know whether a teaching is accurate biblically or not. You can know whether an action is sinful or not. You can know things that are accessible to the means that God's given us to know, the scriptures and evidence. What we cannot judge is what we cannot know, somebody else's heart. Hidden motives. Okay? Things that we think we might know that we don't really know. We should not judge what we can't know. So that's how that breaks out. So righteous judgment will be judgment based on what's knowable and accessible to the means of knowing that God's given us. But when we judge what we can't know, we're in error. Okay. Bob, just to dovetail on that, you're right in chapter 7. The issue is the judgment that these Jews had was not correct because it didn't correspond to the word of God. In verse 27, it goes on, the Jews say, However, we know where this man is from, talking about Christ, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. So here, they're, um, they, they believed you know, in error that they couldn't know from the scriptures where the Messiah came from. Well, what about Micah 5, too? The fact that he'd come from Bethlehem. So they were in grievous error. So uh-huh. they weren't judging him according to truth. And one other item, just in Matthew 7, um, talking about that same category with judgment, judging what we can't know. In Matthew 7, um, Jesus says, judge not, and that's the favorite passage of the liberals, but they don't continue on to read. It says, for in the same manner you judge, you will be judged. Mm -hmm. When you and I are taking the gospel to other people, we're not saying, hey, you're a wretched sinner, but I'm a swell fella. You need a savior, and I don't. We're holding ourselves to the same standard uh, we're holding them to. And therefore, it's not hypocritical judgment. Jesus in Matthew 7 is speaking out against hypocritical judgment, not any judgment in general. So, Thank you, Eric. Saying. Absolutely. Right on. Right on. Okay. Uh, let's go to verse 8. Now, one of the topics uh, that Paul raises often, especially in the Corinthian correspondence, boasting For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Paul's authority came from the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said, Have I not seen the risen Lord? 
And then 1 Corinthians 15, he, he makes the same claim. Paul claimed to be as one born out of time to have seen the risen Lord, objectively. And he was appointed by the risen Lord to be an apostle. And so therefore, Paul had the authority to speak for Christ with all the authority of Christ. So if he were to boast of that authority, and boasting is very thematic here, and he tells us in chapter 10 and verse 17 that his boasting is in the Lord. So in Paul's thinking, his boasting is not to um, enhance his status in the eyes of men, but is so that he could authoritatively, as Christ's apostle, build up the church, build up the church to benefit them, to help them in the way that they really need help. But they are not thinking, they're not thinking correctly, they're listening to the wrong people, they're not listening to the truth that Paul teaches, but they're wowed by some super apostles who claim they had better visions than Paul did. And where this is leading, ultimately, is to Paul's fool speech, <laughs> the famous fool speech. I'm a fool for telling you this, but you made me do it, he's going to say. <laughs> okay, because if, if you're going to listen to false apostles who boast about their visions, then I have no choice but tell you about my vision to show that if we're going to have a vision contest, I, I can hold my own with these guys. But if, I prefer to not even talk about it. I saw the resurrected Christ. He appointed me apostle. That's all I need. Not that I went to the third heaven. But, as a matter of fact, I did. <laughs> okay, if I could just explain Paul's thinking here. So Paul's authority came from the risen Lord and will not be put to shame. And um, probably, ultimately, at the eschatological judgment. So we see that they value rhetorical skill, but Paul's authority comes not from wooing crowds with superior rhetoric, like the sophists that were so popular in Achaia, but from being commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel. And that gospel is powerful and authoritative, whether it's spoken by a silver-tongued orator or whether it's spoken by someone with halting words and difficulty to speak clearly, the gospel is where the power is. All right? It's not a sin to lack rhetorical skill. And I'm not saying rhetorical skill is a bad thing to have. Apollos had it. As I was looking this up, and probably next week we'll get to that, I have a bunch of verses I'm going to read about Apollos. It, it seems, as I looked up Apollos, he came to Corinth after Paul had been there, right, in Acts. And we'll look that up next week. And what happened was, apparently, that he was this Alexandrian Jew, Hellenistic. Paul was not as Hellenistic, okay, so Greek was not his primary language, probably. 
And Paulus, for Paulus it was, because in Alexandria, Greek and skillful use of Greek amongst the Jews had been going on for a couple hundred years, back to the time of the Septuagint. So, Paul, so Paulus comes in to Corinth after Paul, and he is absolutely magnificent in his use of the Greek language. And so what, is, what does it say in 1 Corinthians? Some of them were saying, I'm of Apollos. Okay? Trying to set one off against the other based on their rhetorical skill. We shouldn't do that. Um, uh, how would I uh, assess that? A, a preacher with great rhetorical skill is a wonderful gift to the church. And thank God for the Spurgeons that have arisen in church history. Now, rhetorical skill will probably determine the size of the crowd, but it won't determine the power of the message. And a person with the right gospel without rhetorical skill might have a smaller crowd, but it'll have just as much power to convert people. And that's the way we should look at it. And God gives different people different gifts for whatever he calls them to do and what he expects them to do and what they're able to do. And we should use the best gifts that we can the way God allows us to. But the power has to ultimately come down to the gospel and not anything else. Okay? <laughs> Some of us are stuck with a midway. I went out to California and... I preached this message about the emergent eschatology that uh, out there in California to a pretty good-sized crowd, and uh, people were laughing about my Midwest accent. I said, well, that's, you sure got an interesting Midwest accent. I said, what can you do? You grew up in Iowa, and you're stuck with it. Yeah, Keith. I was just going to read Acts 18 because it talks about that thing with, with uh, Apollos. Apollos. Because it's, it's interesting here. Now it, it said, "Now a Jew named uh, 1824. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and, be, and being fervent of spirit, he was teaching, speaking and teaching accurately concerning uh, the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then it says in 28 or 27, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, which is where Corinth was, yeah, yeah. the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So he hadn't been there yet. So he, obviously and Paul, Paul had already been Paul there. Paul had already preached because there was brethren there. Yeah. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And then verse 1 and 19, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Yeah. So Paul, uh, Paul went there and preached that Apollos did. So reading between the lines, you can get the idea that the Corinthians thought Apollos was wonderful and Paul didn't look so good. Um, it said he was an Alexandrian by birth. Now, that would have meant that... Greek was his mother tongue. 
And he was powerful in the scriptures, which would have meant that what he really knew was a Septuagint. Now, it's interesting. This, Dick, this was yesterday. I was looking at that. I was reading that same section. I think that the theory that Apollos wrote Hebrews might have some merit. And I had a thought yesterday. This is just me, okay? And I'm not of the stature to make any discoveries about such things. But here's my thought that I had yesterday. The author of Hebrews doesn't say who he is. Okay? It just starts out with this beautiful two words that sound the same in the Greek. Many ways, many portions, many ways. Uh, I, can't, I can't say it right now. I can't remember it exactly. Never mentions who wrote it. But what if this is what's going on? Apollos, if it was him, knows that some Christians were already comparing Paul unfavorably to him because of his rhetorical skill. So let's just say Paulos wrote Hebrews and left it anonymous so as not to shame Paul. It's an interesting theory, isn't it? I had that came into my mind yesterday. I never read anybody else that ever said that because his rhetorical skill is obvious in Hebrews. In fact, William Lane says that Hebrews is basically a speech put into writing. It uses the type of plays on words and structure and stuff that would be a speech by someone who is very, very, very talented rhetorically. So that was my thought. So I think I'm voting for Apollos <laughs> as the author of Hebrews, but we won't know until we get to heaven and... I think when we get to heaven, we probably have other ideas to think about besides who wrote Hebrews, but we'll, we'll see. We can always ask. <laughs> now, just a few minutes. I don't want to start on another verse. Is there any, any question somebody has just burning in their heart and mind? Yes, Casey. It's more of just a comment, but I think that we should encourage people who are, do have public ministry to work on their ability to present the gospel, um, to speak, to preach um, well, and to be mm-hmm. excellent in that. And sometimes I have, and I, I teach at a Christian college, so I see a lot of young students coming up um, and um, speaking publicly in chapel uh, situations or different things where uh, they're really rough. And there's this attitude, well, I'm just keeping it real. It's just, um, I, am, uh, I am who I am, and um, I love Jesus, so I can get up there and I can say whatever I want and, and just, you know, however the Spirit moves. And there's not a lot of preparation. And I think, yes, it's not all about delivery. It's more about the content. I completely agree. But we don't want to forsake um, honing our craft and being excellent for I, the Lord. I totally agree. It, it is a gift. And we did have Spurgeon, and Spurgeon was amazing. So. We should do absolutely the best we can with what the Lord gave us. Yeah. And I... Am blessed in in this regard. I have people around me who will not tolerate me doing less than they know I could. Yeah. I'm not lucky. <laughs> I'm not lucky at Dick here. But honestly, that that is a blessing you cannot imagine. I don't get offended by somebody coming to me and say, "Okay, that sermon you preached. Where were you going with that?" Okay. <laughs> And 
No, no, liter- actually, literally that happened, didn't it? Dick came in and said, I, I couldn't follow that sermon. You lost me in there, and I don't know why, and let's look at it. What's the deal? And I figured out what it was, and then I would, Eric, we talked about it after that. I found out that I can't just count verses. I have to count concepts, okay? And in a, a one particular sermon, I had the verses, and I had somewhere it was going, and then I went into another verse and broke it out into like five or six more concepts, and it had detracted from the flow of where the whole thing was going. And so Dick came in and said, I don't know what was wrong, but something was, and we figured it out. And I was able to correct that. I want to do my best. And I can't do my best if people just tell me, oh, good sermon, good sermon, good sermon. Sometimes they got to come in and say, okay, that wasn't your best. What went wrong? <laughs> okay, so... Um, I thank God for that. And I agree with you, Casey. There's no reason to do less than our best on the grounds that God could use it anyhow. I, I agree with that. But I would want to encourage the ones who are doing their best, and they, they might look at John MacArthur or somebody and say, I, well, I'm not even going to do it. I'm not even going to try because I can't be John MacArthur. No, if that was the case, we would lack preachers. Yes? I think it's, you know, it's like what Casey's saying. It's It's not... It's not that eloquence makes the gospel any more powerful, but in our human limitations, it can cause people to tune in better, to yes. hear the word, mm-hmm. and for that word to have its impact. And, you know, and it also can draw a crowd, it, which, yeah, you know, in its own right, people shouldn't just go for hearing eloquence, but if it brings people to hear the word, mm-hmm. if that message is there, that's a good thing. So. Absolutely. I totally agree, and I love hearing a great preacher as long as he's preaching the truth. But you know what's really like a clong? What does it say, Corinthians? I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if, if I have not love, it's a clanging symbol. That's, that, that's what an eloquent preacher is who doesn't have the gospel. It's, it's, oh, who would I think? Like a Robert Schuler when he was young, you know? Okay? Very nice, very smooth, and it's absolutely worthless. <laughs> okay. Oh, we're going over. Okay, sorry. Uh, we'll see you upstairs at 1030. <laughs>